Thank you, Barb and Mark and congregation for singing. You are the choir now. Well, for those of you who uh, don't already know, we are starting the Gospel of Mark for the summer, and we started last Sunday, and we've had uh, on our website and in print, this has actually gone to second printing already, if you can believe it. I know. comes out in paperback this fall. But uh, we've got a daily devotional Monday through Friday, and this is a great way to get just five to ten minutes a day in the morning or in the evening uh, around the dinner table with your family, however you want to do it. Uh, it's a great way to stay plugged into what we're doing, and it prepares you each week for church. And each Tuesday there will be a Bible study to come discuss uh, whatever insights you had. And uh, the discipline that this builds is uh, extremely helpful. In fact, there's I may have shared this already, but this is one of my favorite like pastor stories. But there's a story from a pastor who started the Gospel of Mark, and he said, okay, now next Sunday, for next Sunday, I really, really want everybody here just take 10 minutes and read Mark chapter 17. And, okay, I hear a couple laughs already. And so the next week he comes back and he says, okay, now who read Mark chapter 17 this week? And about half the hands went up, and he said, okay, Mark has 16 chapters, and this morning's sermon is on lying. And... Um, that it preaches pretty well, but we're not going to trick you like that. And, and any reading you can do is above and beyond and will be uh, yield fruit, hopefully all summer for you. But this morning we get uh, Mark chapter 2. And the question, the title question for the sermon is what to do with Jesus. And the way I'm going to frame all of this, we've got three mini stories uh, that are all, you know, obviously part of one story. They go in order. But here's the challenge for us is, do we only love Jesus when he says things uh, that we want him to say? Or he tells us what we want to hear? Is that the only time we love Jesus? What do we do with Jesus when he steps across those boundaries? And, and uh, I was trying to think of an illustration of this, and then a, a really a kind of trite one, but really simple one, uh, happened last night. So um, it's not always easy to follow a source of authority when we disagree with them. So last night, my wife and I wanted to go for a walk. And it kind of, it was humid. I heard there were going to be thunderstorms. So I pulled out my weather app and we were getting ready to eat dinner. And we were like, okay, we'll eat dinner and then we'll go for a walk. And I checked and it said it was going to start raining in 45 minutes. And I was like, okay, Susan, pull out your phone, check your weather app and see what that tells you. And we'll listen to whichever one tells us what we want to hear. Now, this is not a smart way to do it. Now, luckily, we didn't get rained on, but that's hardly the point of the story. Not to, So, uh, the truth is, it's going to rain when it's going to rain, but I learned something about myself. I only trust my weather app when it tells me what I want to hear, which is a very dangerous way to live in Cincinnati. And one of our uh, early presidents said, facts are stubborn things, but our minds are even more stubborn. And uh, as we consider that... We'll uh, move into the text this morning. It says Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. It should be on the screens. It's in your pew Bibles, and I'll be reading it to you. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined... 
at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but the wine, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for uh, the person, uh, both the teaching and the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And now we pray uh, that your Holy Spirit would guide us in reading and understanding and applying your word to our hearts and minds. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first story here is just verses 13 and 14. And this is actually kind of easy to miss some of the implications here because it seems like all he does is call Levi to follow him and Levi follows him. That doesn't really sound like much of a story. Hardly, you know, that seems like it maybe even would have been a footnote. But there's a couple details in there that make it kind of interesting. So if you would look at where Levi is sitting when this happens, Levi is sitting at a tax booth. Now, I know it's early, but who sits at tax booths? Tax collectors. I heard one. So uh, everyone now, tax collectors, sit at tax booths. And so Jesus, after calling all these fishermen in chapter 1, is now going to a tax booth and collecting or and calling a tax collector. And by the way, if you notice that it's always lumped together, sinners and tax collectors. It's like they just always run in the same tribe for some reason. Uh, sinners and tax collectors. And so Jesus goes up to a tax collector. But what we learn about Levi in, in the Gospels is Levi is not a Roman, and the Romans are the ones who impose the tax, which means he's Jewish, and in the minds of many of the Jewish people, he's a traitor. He works for the Romans. He works for the oppressors. And in, in a sense, he's betrayed his own people to be collecting taxes from his own people to give to a foreign power. But that's not all. If you look at where his tax booth is located, it's by the sea. And commentators have suggested it's fairly reasonable to assume a tax collector by the sea taxes fishermen. Which means not only he's in a general vague sense is he siding with the oppressor as a traitor, but he's the specific oppressor and traitor oppressing Jesus' disciples that he called earlier, fishermen. And so this presents us with an interesting problem. Jesus invites someone into his group uh, and has specifically been the kind of the oppressor, the traitor of his disciples. But Levi accepts the invitation and Jesus welcomes him in. And so if we just pause and think about this for just a moment. Are you okay with Jesus when he welcomes traitors 
oppressors and your personal enemies to come and follow him. Is that okay with you? If, you, if your worst enemies, the traitors, someone that's oppressing you, a personal enemy, you've, someone you've got a real grudge against who's done you wrong, and Jesus says to them, come follow me, and they go follow him, how's that sit with you? Worse yet, if you think, you don't have to live with this person. They're in Jesus' inner circle along with you. And, uh, you know, there's, there's 12 in total. There's not a lot of uh, ways you can avoid someone in that size group. And so it's easy for us to pick on uh, the Pharisees, as we'll see later in this story, uh, and other characters for being bothered by Jesus. But who in here wouldn't cringe at least a little bit if their worst enemy is invited to their most inner circle of friends? And so that's, that's just one thing that I think is really easy to miss when we look at Levi being called to be a disciple. It's not so much, it says quite a bit about Jesus, but it might also say something about his other disciples. But as we keep going, in verses 15 to 17, we see now he's invited and he reclines at a table in Levi's house. So Levi is so eager to follow Jesus, he invites him into his home and invites his friends over, who, by the way, are uh, sinners and tax collectors. Uh, that's a great way to be recorded in the scripture, by the way, if you get that title. Uh, and, and so what we might even call this section is, um, it's, some, it's how Jesus is a friend of sinners. And I love, uh, Barb picked this song for the very first song, and it's the, uh, the familiar melody, but it starts off with, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Now, it should strike some of us as odd, that line of that song, because... Who would worship a God by calling their God a friend of sinners? That actually sounds like an insult. Except if it's coming from someone who knows that they're a sinner. It's it's good news to someone who knows that they're a sinner and God is a friend of sinners. But other than, apart from that, it's a strange thing to say in a worship song. But it's 100% true. And so we see this, he's uh, eating and it says the scribes, the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, depending on your translation, they saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors and said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus hears that question and he says, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so as we think about this, this, well, one question I've gotten in a Bible study with this is it's saying, hold on now, is Jesus saying that the Pharisees are righteous? Because uh, he's saying, you know, well, you guys don't need me. That it's the sinners who need me. Well, you might read it that way. I don't think that's correct, but uh, I think this is one of those statements from Jesus that forces personal reflection. When you hear Jesus say that, you have to think: apart from Jesus, do I consider myself to be righteous or a sinner? Those are the options. Apart from Jesus, am I righteous or a sinner? And if the answer is sinner, then you're in need of Jesus, and Jesus has the solution for you. If you think you're righteous apart from Jesus, you could never see your need from him. And so in order to have a, any kind of relationship with Jesus, we must recognize our need of him. And in fact, uh, at second service, we've got the old song from the early 18th century, Come Ye Sinners. And the final verse of that song says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness finally dream, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And that's precisely what Jesus is saying here. Is 
all it takes to follow after Jesus is to feel your need of Jesus. And that, um, that will get you to the point where you're able to have that relationship with him. And this is why Levi was able to drop what he was doing despite everything he was and follow Jesus. Levi knew who he was. He knew that if he was written about, he'd be lumped in with tax collectors and sinners. That's his group. That's who he runs with. And so when he's called to follow Jesus, he's got no problem following Jesus. And there's a truth in here for us, too, that it's often from a place of brokenness that we're most able to hear God's call in a way that moves us. See, we we can't, in fact, what's the, I think it was the founder of uh, Campus Crusade. Uh, and it's one of their, it's either Campus Crusade, someone will correct me after the service, I know that. Um, but he said, no person can enter heaven unless they're first convinced they deserve hell. No person can enter heaven unless they're first convinced they deserve hell. And that's why each week in our service we have this moment where the gospel is presented but through the confession of sins and the assurance of forgiveness. See, we confess our sins, but the gospel doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave us in our sin. Uh, we're assured of our forgiveness as soon as we confess, and then we are uh, freed uh, from sin and we're freed for uh, gospel living. And as we we move now to the largest section, kind of the final section here, this is verses 18 to 22, the question about fasting. And uh, I think it'll, it, uh, yeah, it's back up on the screens for us. Now, I, I don't want to bore you uh, with too much background information, but I'm going to take that risk. Because there are a few interesting things going on here. So uh, John's disciples are fasting, and the Pharisees are fasting, and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but Jesus' disciples are not fasting. That seems like somewhat of an oddity, right? Jesus is, he is a religious guy. He does uh, observe Old Testament law. Yet here we see him doing something different than the other Jews around him. So you have to ask what's going on. And Jesus gives an answer, but there's just one piece of uh, background information that might be helpful. First of all, in the Old Testament, fasting is only required. Now you're allowed to do it more, but you're only required to do it one day per year. The Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16.24, if you're the note-taker. But by Jesus' time, by the time he comes on the scene, the Pharisees had decided that people should fast twice a week, the second and fifth days of the week, which, by the way, Sabbath is the Saturday, first day of the, or the seventh day, so the first day is Sunday, second day is Monday. Does anybody want to fast every Monday? Like, I think the Monday jokes would just increase exponentially if, if I decided that no one in our church was going to eat on Mondays. Uh, I think that would just make it that much worse in people's minds. But it's important to note here that Jesus is not violating any Old Testament command. He's violating a command of the Pharisees. And Pharisees uh, are curious, possibly upset about that. And so importantly here, we have to ask, first of all, why the Pharisees would have ever invented such an extension to the law. And it's really easy to get uh, judgmental about the Pharisees. And one of my favorite quotes is that it, the best way to become a Pharisee is by hating Pharisees. And I, I think I even wrote that in my uh, one of my sections in, in the Mark devotional is that quote is the easiest way to become a Pharisee is by hating Pharisees. Uh, and so the Pharisees, this is the background information for you, and this is going to help you understand it, I think. Pharisees saw that Israel was under Roman occupation and uh, in the past, when Israel was in trouble, if you go back and look at the Minor Prophets or uh, the book of Judges, 
they were called to repent and turn to God. And that was how they would get liberated from whoever their captor or occupier was. And so the Pharisees read the Old Testament. They knew it well. And they said, well, if that's what it took then, that's what it'll take now. So they're trying to lead. They're actually revivalists. They're trying to lead the people into spiritual revival so that the Roman oppressors will be cast off. And so I don't think we often think of them as revivalists, but their thinking was something like this. If fasting once a year is holy, imagine how holy it would be to fast twice a week. And if all of us did that, we'd be so holy that God would have to rescue us from the Romans. But the problem here is that when we try to coerce good works out of people without first addressing the issues of the heart, it will never yield proper results. And so you can see potentially good intentions gone wrong with the Pharisees. And I don't think that's how we usually think of Pharisees. Maybe uh, maybe I'm in the minority here, but I just always learn they're, they're bad guys. You know, it's, it was almost like watching like a kid's TV show, you know, when the, the, the clearly the bad guy comes on screen and everybody starts booing. You know, that's how I learned how to read the Bible as a kid and through middle school and high school is you start booing the Pharisees every single time. And they're certainly on the wrong side of Jesus. So not making that defense, but I am just saying they tried to do some good things, but did them the wrong way. And that's a very dangerous trap that even Christians can fall into. And so the term that a lot of people use for what they've done here is fencing the law. They put a fence around it to guard that, to make sure no one breaks that fasting rule. We're going to add more fasting rules to keep that initial one even safer. Now this impulse still happens in the modern world. So there's a pastor, I was reading his his uh, commentary on this passage, and he said one time he was meeting with a woman, and <clears throat> excuse me, and she was asking about the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And she had a very famous question that's famous in Scripture too: Who is my neighbor? And he's trying to describe to her. Well, you know, Jesus defines it this way. He's the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And she said, No, no. She said, Well, you know, it can't be everyone. That would be impossible. That, it can't be that everyone is my neighbor. I can't manage that. So here's what we're going to do. And she pulled out a map and she marked where her house is. And she said, I want you to draw for me the, the square around all of the houses that are officially my neighbor. And I will love those people. And then I can fulfill Jesus's commandment. And it's funny, but I understand it too. It'd be way easier. If we could just put up a fence and say, okay, I'm going to follow the law this way and I'll never have to be guilty and I won't have to worry about a guilty conscience of not doing everything I'm supposed to do. It's Yeah, that'd be way easier, but that's not the command. And in the the answer to that question by who's my neighbor is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and Jesus simply asks, you know, who was a good neighbor uh, to this person? And everyone knew the answer. Not everyone likes the implications of the answer. And so Jesus responds to this question about why he's not fasting. And that's the background. You know, the Pharisees, they've set up these rules about fasting. Jesus is not breaking God's law, but he's breaking the Pharisees' law. And they say, well, why can't you fast? And he gives kind of a curious response. He says, uh, can the wedding can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can you fast at the bachelor party? Is kind of the question. Can you fast while the groom is with you? Uh, as long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. And this is a curious response. 
And it's almost to say, and now if you think of, by the way, spiritually, one of the purposes, one of the goals of fasting is to draw near to the presence of God. And so you'll see Christians, and I think, um, what's his, uh, celebration of discipline? Foster? Yeah, Foster. Drew's nodding yes. I trust him. Uh, Foster, you know, he'll talk about fasting, and one of them is, you know, if you don't, if you feel like God is absent, you want to draw near to him, and that's why a lot of people fast during Lent, they give something up during Lent to try to draw closer to God. But Jesus is saying, why would my apostles try to grow closer to God when they're walking around with him every day? They're eating all their meals with him. They sleep in a tent next to him. You know, they share a sleeping bag. They're, they don't need to fast. They've got God right here with them. And he says, now, you know, once the bridegroom's taken away, they'll fast again. So he's not removing the, you know, the, the, the spiritual discipline of fasting altogether for uh, Christians and everyone who comes after him. But he is saying, while I'm here, why would they do that? It just doesn't make any sense. And then he goes on to say, uh, this explanation of new and old fabric, new and old wineskins. Does this make a lot of sense to everybody here? That's, if this has made perfect sense to you the first time you read it, raise your hand. Okay. We've got a couple people that... Uh, now, these metaphors are somewhat lost on me. I have never tried to sew an old piece of cloth onto a new piece of cloth. I never had one of those denim jean jackets where you put all the patches on. And even then, those are more for style than function. Um, and I have never tried to uh, put new wine into old wineskins. In fact, I have trouble even picturing what that looks like. But these were very common metaphors that would have made sense to Jesus' audience. And I was talking to another pastor friend this week, and I said, you know, I get the idea, I get what he's saying, but what's, you know, what's a modern metaphor and we were kind of going back and forth for a little while and he said well maybe it's more like you know a butterfly in the cocoon you know you won't see it and he said wait now he said actually better yet for cincinnatians it's more like the cicada and the little cicada skin (laughs) and i thought about bringing a picture and putting it on but it was gross there was like a perfectly preserved cicada skin on my door last year and i took a picture of it you can see all the details of the cicada but that's like why the cicada is not going to go back into that shell, into that skin. And it's not that, you know, something old has been completely done away, but it's emerged from what was old. It's kind of the fulfillment. The goal of that skin was to release the cicada. The goal of the cocoon is to release the butterfly. And so Jesus is saying, uh, these, a lot of these Old Testament regulations are brought to their fulfillment in Jesus. He's not simply discarding the law. He's fulfilling the law. Um, but you're not going to put him back. The the whether well, things that those things are established and the goal of them is accomplished in Jesus, and so Jesus is not going to go uh, necessarily back to them. And so, as I conclude, I'm just going to I'll recap for you here what I think are three questions for reflection. And if you're if you don't take notes and you want to take notes, this is the time. Write these down. And so here are the questions, and I put them in the first person so that I have to answer them, and hopefully you'll have to answer them as you reflect on them. The first is, what will I do, what would I do, what will I do, when Jesus invites my enemies into my inner circle? When Jesus invites my oppressors into my inner circle? When Jesus invites someone who has wronged me into my inner circle? And that could mean into your church, into your small group, it could marry into your family. I'm sure uh, that's happened more than once in history. But what what will I do? Will I continue to follow after Jesus? Will I do 
what he says to do, will I follow him as others who I don't like follow him as well? Or do I only follow him when I like hearing what he has to say? So what will I do when Jesus invites my enemies into my inner circle? The second question is, what will I do when Jesus invests time and resources into people that I don't think are worthy? And this is what the Pharisees saw. They they saw Jesus as a great teacher, yet here he is reclining at the house, which, by the way, reclining, that's a pretty easy modern metaphor. If you recline at someone's house, that shows a sign of acceptance in the ancient world and in the modern world. Uh, And he says, you know, why, are, why is Jesus spending time with those people if he's got all these great things to teach? And so do we, do we not like when Jesus, where Jesus spends his time and his resources? So what will I do? Will I follow Jesus when he invests his time and resources into people that I don't think are worthy of his time and his, and his energy? And will I follow Jesus by actively spending time with people that I might not think are worthy, but Jesus decides who is worthy? not me. And the third question is, what will I do with Jesus when he won't make or follow the rules that I think are necessary? Which is, this kind of sums up all of them, right? What to do with Jesus when he won't play by all of my rules? And so that's the question is, does Jesus get to set the agenda or do we? And that's what this final question is here with the, between the Pharisees and Jesus is about fasting is Jesus, the Pharisees are saying, no, we get to set the rules. And Jesus is like, uh, no, you don't. <laughs> Jesus gets to set the rules and his disciples are wise to be following him. And so we follow Jesus. And so there's a, a quote from my seminary professor that I, I keep thinking of different ways to word it, but I'll give you his version of it first. His name was Dan Doriani. And at the end of our ethics class, the final day of class, and this was a class you take in your last seminary, I think it was one of the last lectures I ever sat through, he said, Sometimes following after Jesus will make you popular. Sometimes it won't. Follow him anyway. Sometimes following after Jesus will make you happy, and sometimes it won't. Follow him anyway. You can fill in the blank with whatever word you want there. The point is follow Jesus anyway, and the answer is right there in the name of our servants here. It's because Jesus is better. Jesus is better than... The rules we can make up for ourselves, uh, he's better than the systems of, uh, of religion that we can construct or conceive and um, all the terms of self-righteousness that we try to cling to. Jesus is better than those things, and so we follow him no matter what. Will you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you uh, for the example set to us by your son, Jesus. And we thank you that you came to call not the righteous, but the sinners. And we know that we are in that, that camp, that boat, and we are thankful for the grace and mercy extended to us uh, by the teaching and ministry and work of your son, Jesus, uh, throughout his life on the cross and in the victory of his resurrection.